Before the show starts, I want to make an appeal to all you listeners that if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon. Not only will you help this podcast continue to move forward, you will now get a little something in return. You will join the table of ranks of the SRB empire. For a monthly contribution of $1 to $4, you'll be given the rank of Collegiate Registrar and receive an SRB podcast refrigerator magnet. For $5 to $9, you'll be named Collegiate Secretary and get an SRB podcast shot glass and all the privileges of lower ranks. For $10 to $24, you'll become a Collegiate Counselor and will receive a promo code for 30% off of books from the University of Pittsburgh Press and all the privileges of lower ranks. And for $25 or more, you'll be anointed a Chancellor and will be sent a set of four SRB podcast shot glasses and all the privileges of lower ranks. Join the table of ranks and help me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else by clicking on the Patreon button on seansrussiablog.org. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. At the dawn of the 20th century, peasants made up about 80% of the population of the Russian Empire. Peasant life had been undergoing rapid change in these years, change that would only accelerate with the 1905 revolution, the outbreak of World War I, and finally, the Russian Revolution of 1917. So how did they experience the Russian Revolution? What were their aspirations and concerns? How does the revolution in rural Russia differ from that in the cities, and how does the peasant experience push us to change how we understand those revolutionary years? For some insight, I turn to Aaron Reddish. Aaron Reddish is an associate professor of history at Wayne State University, where he specializes in late imperial and Soviet history with a focus on the social, cultural, and political history of the countryside. He is the author of Russia's Peasants in Revolution and Civil War, Citizenship, Identity, and the Creation of the Soviet State, 1914-1922, published by Cambridge University Press. Here's Aaron Reddish. At the turn of the century, peasants made up about you know, 80 to 85 percent of the population of the Russian Empire, and peasant society was undergoing profound changes before 1917. So I thought we'd start by having you do a bit of an overview of you know, what was peasant life like, particularly in Vyatka, where you did a lot of your research, and, and how was it changing uh, running up to the eve of World War I? Yeah, so a peasant life on the surface was very much like it had been for the last couple hundred years. That is, its peasant life was seasonal, out and sowed the crops, rye, barley, oats, uh, etc. And life was dependent on the season. Uh, the key markers of the, of the year were the spring and fall. And you could, if you just looked at the village, seen that as very much kind of as it had been for centuries. 
However, and one of the points that I try to make in my work is that there were dramatic changes going on really since emancipation, since 1861 uh, and the 1860s, that there was increased contact with larger cultures, which was transforming peasant society and peasant life. Uh, and that's, I think, very important. And that could be seen several different ways with increased industrialization across Russia. There was a massive out-migration from the village uh, to the urban areas, but also seasonal migration. You know, by 1890 in central Russia, about 40% of Russian peasants were leaving for, you know, work outside the village. Uh, and one of the neat things about all of this is that peasants were not just going far away. They weren't just going to Moscow. They weren't just going to St. Petersburg, but they might just be going down the road to the uh, nearest town, that they might just be going to a smaller factory. And so there are all these webs of all these uh, different migration patterns and that one village uh, might be going to Perm and then the village, the neighboring village might be going to uh, Moscow. Anyway, all of this is to say is that there was massive out-migration uh, from the village and this was making peasants have a larger contact with the national culture, larger commercial culture. By the turn of the century, you could see this actually uh, on peasants and in their houses, right? They were wearing factory-made clothes, uh, men were carrying billfolds, pocket watches, and kind of means of time were becoming commonplace. And there was increased education, increased literacy, especially among young peasant males. Uh, and on top of that, there were legal changes, right? With the Stalipin reforms, uh, which was undermining the commune and allowing individual peasants to go farm uh, on their own. So all of this was uh, kind of shaking the foundations of peasant society. Older patriarchal society was being challenged by younger peasants and making it ripe for revolution. And talk a little bit about the, the impact of 1905, because, you know, 1905... Uh, the general understanding of 1905 is mostly centered around, of course, uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow to a certain thing. But it, the revolution continued to a large extent in the countryside way past, you know, into 1906 and in some cases into 1907, right? Right. And actually, you can go back to 1902 if you look at Western Russia and Ukraine, uh, Poltava, Kharkiv, uh, that there was, there was peasant unrest there as, as well. But in Vyatka, I mean, if you look at the archival record and clearly see how much 1905 was this dress rehearsal for 1917. And it was the memory of 1905 and the political institutions and political networks that came from 1905 that shaped the early months of 1917. Peasants in 1905 in Vyatka and actually across most of, of Russia uh, made connections with workers, with larger political organizations that they would remember and reproduce in March and April. So 1905 was important for really cutting their teeth. Now, the, the next big break for, for peasant society, and it's one that you, you specifically note, and that is the outbreak of War One. And in fact, in your book, uh, Russia's Peasants in Revolution and Civil War, you write that for those in the countryside, 
the revolution truly began with the call to war on 18 July 1914 reached the village. From that moment, through the next eight years, peasants experience a connected string of social and political upheaval that would only end with the gradual conclusion of the civil war and slow recovery from famine. You know, this is a really, I think, a profound statement because first it, it makes us rethink the narrative that we're used to in terms of the revolution unfolding. But talk about what did, what do you mean by the revolution truly began for peasants? So if you think about it on the individual level, peasant, I mean, peasant society might have been shaken before 1914. But when the call to call to colors came in the late summer of 1914, that's when the state and the, and the military really intervened, kind of penetrated the village to an extent that it had never been penetrated before. And these changes, these economic, social, military, political changes did kind of came in these waves until 1922. You know, Peter Holquist is famously called this, this continuum of crisis of 1914 to 1921. And I agree completely. This is uh, the only way to understand 1917 is through the changes from the war. And this was, if you think about it for the, uh, the individual peasant and for the, at the village level, this was interconnected, that you cannot, uh, you cannot disaggregate the 1917 revolution from the wartime challenges. And, and what were some of those challenges? First of all, there was the conscription and mobilization of men. You know, by the second year of the war, about 40% of peasant households didn't have a working hand. Vyatka was relatively normal in that about half, 49% of able-bodied men were mobilized into the army. Uh, so this made, as, as some critics like to say, uh, uh, villages made of women. That's kind of an overstatement. It was mostly women and older men, which changed how field work was done. It changed how village politics were done. Uh, peasant women became much more involved in, um, in village life and village governance. Um, they actually signed proclamations and petitions uh, that they hadn't done before. Sometimes they did it and they wrote in parentheses, wife of their husband. But the war also changed how economics in the, vil in the village were done. So the establishment of the grain monopoly, uh, and really we should call it the foodstuffs because it wasn't just grain, which changed how peasants sold their goods. It made it that horses and other livestock could be uh, sold or conscripted. But then beyond that, and it really, you know, it differs from village to village, from region to region. But by the end of 1914, early 1915, new people, you know, village men were leaving, but many villages then had refugees come, and this is in Vyatka in particular that I'm talking about, uh, refugees come in that they had to care for. Then after that, I'm sorry, there were prisoners of war first, and then kind of this wave of refugees. So especially in eastern Vyatka and uh, parts of central Vyatka, there were these large concentrations of prisoners of war that were overseen by villagers. 
so this really transformed how uh, village life was. Uh, peasants were, uh, peasant labor was conscripted. Uh, peasants, some peasants were conscripted to uh, fell trees, help factories run. So it really changed kind of the daily life of the peasants. Yeah, I think it's important actually, now that I think of it, to give the picture that Russian society after 1914 is in constant movement. Well, maybe not constant movement, but far more movement than it had been previously. You have uh, men going to the front, you have refugees, uh, you have, you know, prisoners of war, you have a lot of regular dislocation in, you know, normal Russian society. So for for the men who are con conscripted to the military as a peasant, what kind of world did they find and, and how did it relate to their experiences, say, you know, do going to out-migration in the city and in, in or living in the village? Well, that's a, a great question. You know, I like to focus on the home front, but those soldiers did, you know, return home. And while they were away, you know, as Alan Wildman has written, uh, Josh Sanborn has talked about as well, that it's there that they... Uh, became experienced in uh, politics, right? They became radicalized. I would argue as well that they uh, became, that they felt themselves part of the nation and they wrote home about experiences. The other thing is that they also became part of the, the violence of the war, not, and not just numbed, but uh, that, the, that they understood how much the war shaped the nation. Uh, and when these soldiers came home, 1917, 1918, some of them became leaders in the early Soviet regime. I found that others had a hard time kind of reconnecting. These veterans became, talk about this in another work, that these um, uh, veterans organizations actually began to resist Soviet power. Um, Others, you know, when they join the Red Army or leave, they, they come back and they don't really fit into the, the village. So it's this profound transformation. I mean, some of them do become allies of the Soviet state. And you can see how much, you know, they go into the army, they come back and they kind of work up the ranks of the Soviet state. But others became traumatized. So 1914, you have a massive out-migration of, of mostly men to the front. And then three years later, revolution breaks out in Petrograd and begins to spread through the Russian Empire. So talk about the revolution in the village and, and what issues galvanized peasant participation and, and how, did, how did they put their particular rural stamp on the revolution? Yeah. So uh, as I said, you know, you can't understand 1917 without the war. One of the parts of the war, not just mobilization, but also the understanding peasants were part of them. You know, I see maybe more than most that peasants really had a sense of patriotism and that they were fighting not just for the czar, but for Russia, for the nation, and that they felt themselves to be part of this larger national cause. That's very important to understand the revolution when it came to the village in March of 1917. Uh, you know, overall, there was this happiness, this glee uh, that peasants felt when they, uh, when the bells were rung in the churches and they, they read about, uh, they had the abdication manifesto read to them. And while some 
scholars talk about peasants just wanted to be left alone, that they wanted to overthrow the old regime and establish peasant institutions. In fact, the archival documents show that peasants wanted to be part of this reinvention of the Russian nation, that they wanted to, uh, and they actively supported to rebuilding uh, local administration. Uh, they sent delegates to the regional, provincial, and national congresses, and they quickly adopted the language of the of the new regime. You know, they wanted, you know, they wanted new freedom. They wanted to be citizens. They wanted land. But the main thing is that they also wanted to be true citizens and nation. Yeah, this is really interesting because you know, all one of the striking things of a lot of the documents being generated from below from peasants and workers and soldiers the language of citizenship and nationhood i mean you you can't escape it. it it's it's just it permeates throughout all these documents so for a peasant what did what did it mean to be a member of a nation and what did it mean to be a citizen so again i i want to preface this by saying that you know we don't really know what was what peasants dreamed um uh, we don't we don't really understand the the inner workings of, of peasants, uh, and you know that's a that's a criticism of peasant mentality studies. But uh, what we think from the documents is that they had a really uh, recondite understanding of not just these terms of freedom and land, but especially citizenship. Uh, that in the spring of 1917 they embraced or accepted this tutorial relationship with Zemstva workers and other rural intelligentsia who tried to teach them how to be good revolutionary citizens. And that was impressing upon them the uh, importance of duty, the importance of sacrifice, of education, of enlightenment, kind of all the liberal, with the big L, liberal ideas of citizenship. But you could also see in the documents that peasants bristled at uh, some of these more intervention or negative of citizenship. Uh, there was one really important document that I read where you know, one of the things in the spring is that they were taking these loyalty oaths, that they were taking oaths to the new revolutionary uh, state. This was very, this was very moda in 1917. Uh, but Peasants said that they would not, this one, this one um, community said that they would not take the oath, they would not swear the oath because as citizens they didn't need to, that they actually saw themselves as citizens even without taking this, this oath. And that was really important, that they began to actually shrug off this tutorial relationship with, uh, with these rural elites and, and uh, assert themselves as kind of their own social agents. Right. And I would, I would also add perhaps a, a, an understanding of sovereignty as rooted in the people, right? And rooted in the nation. Right, exactly. Uh, and, you know, the nation, the, there were these words that floated through the air in 1917. And, um, you know, Mark Steinberg has written about this, Orlando Feiges and Nisky have all written this as well, and how important the idea of emotion and morality uh, so ideas of citizenship, nation, uh, were really important, as were ideas of justice, and they were tied to religion. And, you know, it's really important 
to understand how emotional this time was in the spring for the village, um, that they really did feel free uh, and that they wanted to reconstitute this Russian nation. The Bolsheviks, you know, they, they had a suspicious and even hostile view of peasants, and, and most of their power was not based in the countryside, but based in the city and the army, though with the army, the majority of the army were yesterday's peasants. So one can make a, a connection there with their with peasant support. But nonetheless, so how did peasants in Vyatka or in elsewhere view Soviet power and the Bolsheviks program more generally? So when Soviet power came to the village, you know, it didn't happen in October, uh, these power in Petrograd, but it really came to the villages in Vyatka in the winter of 1917-19. This real fracturing of state power, and it was only gradually that Soviet, and here I mean Soviet power, not Bolshevik, uh, really entered into the into the village. Um, for peasants in Vyatka, the first issue during these crucial months, uh, early months in 18, was land, was the Black Repartition. And the Bolsheviks gave them what they wanted. You know, this was this SR idea that they actually uh, gave them the land. Uh, they did this in November, and then they reconstituted it in February of 1918. And that you know, this is a really important part of my research. If you look at peasants in the spring of 1918, you see them reaching out to this nascent Soviet state to guarantee their uh, their newfound land. Uh, in Vyatka, it ended up that they didn't actually get that much land, um, all pittance, in the Black Earth region in southern, central and southern Russia, it was much more. But for the peasants, it was really land. So they they viewed Soviet power um, with suspicion, but also in this way, rather favorably. It would be, if you look at it from 1918 to 1921, though, it'd be kind of this dance, the Soviet power and the peasants, that peasants would embrace and accept parts of the Bolshevik program and the policies, um, be it on nationalities for non-Russian peasants, cultural programs for uh, famine relief, for aid to the soldatsky, that is soldiers' wives and soldiers' families, but they would strongly resist other parts that they saw as unjust, uh, overly interventionist, or overly violent. And this would be um, conscription, massive grain requisition that, that uh, swept through the southern Vyatka countryside in 1918. Uh, the violence of the Cheka, of the Red Army, and, the and to some extent the Revolutionary Tribunals. Uh, so this was real back and forth. But in the end, you know, the Bolsheviks might have had a suspicious view of peasants as uh, petty bourgeois, or as as maybe anti-revolutionary, um, but they also, I think, ideologically, the Bolsheviks, at least in Vyatka, in the countryside, ideologically understood that they needed peasant support to rule. You you mentioned uh, grain requisitioning, and the you know I think this is a really important story for how peasants. One of the aspects in which they experienced the civil war 
so talk a bit more. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the civil war in in Vyatka, but talk a little bit about more about what the civil war was like for the countryside in Vyatka. First of all, I don't think that we have research on the daily life in the civil war. You know, Don Raleigh's Flint book, Igor Narsky's book as well. But beyond that, we don't have even kind of the military a good military history, a recent military history. I guess Jonathan Smith as well, a recent book as well. Um, for peasants in uh, Vyatka, uh, you can clearly see how important the environment and the region were, how important they were in shaping peasant experiences of the Civil War. The southern part of Vyatka uh, had a fertile soil and they, it was a grain producing uh, region. And so in the summer of 1918, the Bolsheviks actually experimented. They developed their grain requisition policies in Southeast Vyatka, which was to send in um, brigades and try to at first to we'll bargain with the, with the peasants uh, to get them to give up grain. And when that didn't work, they essentially established quotas, and if the peasants didn't meet those quotas, then the grain would be taken uh, from them at gunpoint. And this this policy would then be used throughout Russia. Peasants weren't very happy with that. Uh, there was massive unrest, massive resistance, um, and in fact, some of the brigades, some famous brigade called the Stepanov Brigade, that actually turned against Soviet power. So that was the beginning of the Civil War. And then right after that was a massive um, unrest, uh, rebellion in Izhevsk, which was in Vyatka. It's now where the Kalashnikov uh, rifle is made. Uh, it was an armaments-producing uh, city. Uh, it it uh, overthrew Soviet power and became a really a large wing of the Kamuch rebellion. Uh, and that lasted in 1918. And again, the Red Army had to sweep in. Uh, and then right after that, in 1919, the White Army from Siberia came in to the exact same region. And so what I'm getting at is that peasants experienced the Civil War in these waves in the summer, in the fall, in the early 1919, where it'd be this wave of, of violence. Uh, so there would be conscription of men, conscription of grain, conscription of horses. And then also, you know, there was this one very telling case uh, during the pre-Kamuch rebellion, so September, October of 1918, where a peasant had problems with their neighbor and they contacted the, the pre-Kamuch office, officer saying that, you know, my neighbor is a ally of the Soviet state. They came in and uh, beheaded the head of, the, uh, of the, the village. So here you see kind of village dynamics playing out. And so by, by 1919, uh, you know, the village in southern and eastern Vyatka was in tatters. Uh, once the whites were pushed out, the reds would come in and set up revolutionary tribunals, prosecute enemies of the Soviet state. Uh, and essentially establish a military regime. So it, it was it was very unsettling. In northern Vyatka, it was much calmer because you didn't have the light threat. Given your focus on peasants and rural life, 
How does viewing 1917 from the provinces and through peasants' eyes complicate and even change or suggest we should change our narrative of the revolution, which mostly focuses on Petrograd? Uh, the, the key question. Uh, so I, yeah, I am part of in this provincial turn uh, in the literature, along with several other wonderful other scholars, Don Raleigh, Orlando Figes, Sarah Badcock, uh, Mike Hickey. Uh, all of us have, I'm forgetting some as well, have focused on a region or a couple of regions uh, and emphasize the importance. You know, none of us, I think, are denying that the center, that Petrograd, was established the main narrative, the policy. But when you look at the province, especially through the peasants' eyes, kind of a different way in which the revolution played out. State power functioned in a different way, often fractured ways uh, at the local than it did at the center. Local and regional factors, be it in nationality, the composition of nationality, economics uh, of the environment shaped how individuals understood the revolution. You know, the discourse of 1917 and Petrograd, uh, so shaped by power, sometimes didn't actually uh, play out in the provinces. That dual power, and this is something that Sarah Badcock has shown really well, that dual power was in many ways a myth. Uh, that, in fact, the Soviets and the Duma and the provisional government worked well together through 1917. Yeah, so, I mean, those are those are the, are the main things. I mean, it really, it shapes the, it makes us rethink the language, um, but I would also say that reshapes the narrative that we can see Soviet power beginning in Petrograd in November of 1917, but it certainly doesn't begin in a place like Vyatka in the village uh, for another four or five months, and that there are different understandings of what Soviet power meant. Uh, so all of this makes us kind of understand that the revolution was you know, kaleidoscopic, not I want to talk a little bit about your, your current research, um, because you're, you've more recently been turning to law and local courts and crime and also prisons during the revolutionary period. So t talk a bit about how rural courts in rural Soviet courts functions and the general law, how it dealt with lawlessness and, and violence that came with the revolution and civil war. Yeah. So, you know, my, uh, my current book project is on the Soviet courts from 1917 to 1939. And uh, it really is an extension of my first book. Uh, you know, some of the, some of the documents that I'm looking at for this book, actually, I, I found originally in my research for my for my first book so one of the you know one of the things that I found is is that peasants uh, continue to use courts be it uh, imperial provisional government or Soviet and that they needed these courts so in November of 1917 Lenin said that they had thrown away the law and the courts, you know, into the dust heap because they were tools of the bourgeoisie. So the new Soviet state actually did get rid of the criminal and civil codes and they abolished the old, old courts and they established uh, local people's courts and revolutionary tribunals. Uh, and these courts were supposed to further the revolution 
they were supposed to uh, try all matters in the in the um, through proletarian consciousness, what the heck that means, and also be performative justice that they were supposed to educate. And I found that you know they did do that. There was this performative aspect, but they also were as law is supposed to do, um, actually stabilize society. And they were these institutions that actually staunched um, violence. Uh, they were staunched, I would say, excess violence in the revolution. They tried criminals, they tried people for murder. Uh, they, by the end of the Civil War, they were trying officials for corruption and for access violence, you know, and, and Matt Rendell talks about this at length in his work on the Revolutionary Tribunals, but you can also see this in the People's Courts, that they are trying to add some semblance of stability uh, in this time of massive upheaval and famine. You know, one of the interesting cases uh, in the end of the Civil War, and this uh, it's a little uh, grotesque, is that uh, and this was in Samara, I believe, or somewhere in the Black Earth region, in the famine, is that uh, judges had to decide how to try a famine, uh, those who survived the famine, and actually uh, engaged in cannibalism. Um, so would they try someone who, who engaged in cannibalism? And they decided that if the person actually killed someone, then they would be tried for murder. Uh, but if they just engage in cannibalism, then that would be okay. It's a little kind of grotesque, but it gets at some of how much the courts had to, if you will, create this narrative of stability um, through the end of the, at the end of the Civil War. And were peasants, because there is a tradition, you know, as you know, of peasants going to court in the 1870s to to uh, adjudicate disputes. Um, was was there also a return to the court to adjudicate? disputes in and and here I'm getting at you know in light of the the vi the experience of violence over this period from World War one to the end of the Civil War even during did peasants also return to the courts to settle disputes amongst themselves yes so uh, Jane Burbank does this great job of showing how much peasants turned to the to the ham to the Hamlet courts the Volus courts uh, and created this legal tradition that continues during the Soviet period. You know, the, the peasants might have resisted grain requisitions and conscription, but they turned to the courts uh, in, in waves. In fact, uh, in 1918 and 1919, local courts were overwhelmed by the amount of cases, civil claims that peasants brought before them. Not just actually, so I mean, there was the civil claims of property, uh, but also uh, divorce, and then later on, alimony. Peasants would use the courts as a way of, again, providing some form of institutionalization, stability in their lives. So the courts were these emissaries of the state. They were really important in providing this arm into this extension, into the village where the Bolshevik party, the Communist Party, uh, could not. And finally, I want to ask you a bit about the state of historical scholarship on the Russian peasantry and the peasantry, the empire in general, because it, it, it seems to me, and maybe this is just a personal dissatisfaction, that peasants have 
seem to have fallen off the radar in many respects. So, so what is what is going? What are some interesting things going on that you know about in the history of imperial history of peasants in imperial Russia and in the Soviet period? Yeah, so you've noticed a decline. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's only eighty to eighty-five percent of the population. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. When Orlando Fidges' book came out in what eighty-eight or eighty-nine, uh, reviewers said this is going to be the first of this wave in peasant scholarship. And, you know, it just wasn't, in fact. I mean, there was some great scholarship in the late 80s, early 90s by uh, Ben Ekloff and et cetera. Um, but it's, it's certainly in transition. Uh, you know, Tracy McDonald's award-winning book, 1920s, uh, shows how important kind of studying the peasants is to understanding Soviet life. Uh, yeah, there's been this real shift away from studying social classes, right? Not just peasants, but workers and soldiers. Instead, there's been this shift to institutions and cultural practices. Uh, it's just really, um, there's so much more that we could do by the countryside. You know, and not just the late imperial. Uh, can you name me a book on the peasants or on the serfs from pre-1861? Uh, and the, published in the last 10, 15 years. Oh, yeah. I, my, the only ones I know of is the ones, the few I had, to, I read in graduate school. But th that, yes, that goes to my other complaint of uh, the sheer lack of scholarship on serfdom. Yeah, right, right. And I mean, there's obviously the great literature on collectivization, but even post-collectivization, post-World War II, uh, you know, it's a, it's a declining countryside, but it's still, you don't, there's still the majority of the population until the 1960s lived out in, the, out in the, the countryside. And we now have the ability, if we can get into the archives, to actually get to the hyper-local. So this is really the opportunity to study the village in a way that we could not before. So yeah, it's, it's in transition. That was Aaron Reddish, Associate Professor of History at Wayne State University and author of Russia's Peasants in Revolution and Civil War, Citizenship, Identity, and the Creation of the Soviet State, 1914-1922, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. You say, 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 one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. Bad, bad, Freddy told me everybody's side. DJ spinning, I said, my, my. Flashes back, flashes back, flashes fast. Flashes cool, Francois, c'est pas, flash ain't on two. You say, one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. Good time.